0: Right today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Last year has been really difficult for so many different reasons in our day to day lives, within our communities, our states, and even our collective experience as a nation. By any measure, this has been a generation defining disaster. And while a lot of people have pointed to an overall lack of pandem- pandemic preparedness, As a driving force behind much of the chaos, in some ways, it was impossible to predict. That's kind of the nature of disasters, isn't it? They come when we don't expect them, and they turn our lives upside down. And even as the pandemic has been its own unique dumpster fire for each of us, our next guest has a new book out which provides a bit of solace by offering some broad historical context around the many disasters that humanity has endured. And he also explores why, in the face of a catastrophe, some societies fall apart and others hold together, while a few even emerge stronger. Neil Ferguson is a renowned historian and author of 16 books, including Civilization, The Great Degeneration, The Ascent of Money, and his newest book, titled Doom, The Politics of Catastrophe. He's also the Milbank Family Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Neil Ferguson, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Great to be with you, Stephen.
0: Yeah. So aside from the obvious pandemic in which we find ourselves living, tell me what prompted you to write this book?
1: Well, we're fascinated by doom. Uh, we love movies about disaster. Uh, we love science fiction in which a terrible fate uh, awaits us and is is presented. And I was thinking uh, back in 2019 about writing a book on on this strange feature of uh, our species that we think a lot about, the end of the world, the end of our species. And at the same time, although we're fascinated by this idea, when disasters strike, uh, we we don't handle them at all well. Uh, And and so when the COVID-19 pandemic began, I was writing a, a regular weekly column for the London Times and the Boston Globe. I was I think, quite quick to see that we were in for a very big disaster. But I was also struck by how familiar some of our responses were. We we kind of went from denial in January and February to panic in, in March, and I felt I'd seen that before. So I felt that what we needed was some way of putting all this in in context, not just by comparing with other pandemics, there are books that that do that already, but to relate it to all the forms that disaster takes and to try and unpick that curious relationship we have, where we're simultaneously fascinated by the end of the world, but quite bad at dealing with with medium-sized disasters that obviously don't end the world.
0: Hmm. So, who's to blame for society's inadequate response to? A disaster like the COVID-19 pandemic?
1: The easy answer in any disaster is is to blame the person at the top. And in some ways, that's the right response, because as Harry Truman said, the, the buck stops with the person in the White House. A lot of uh, of the journalism last year in the US essentially said it, it's all the fault of, of Donald Trump. And if you'd gone to the UK, I could have read the same story about Boris Johnson in Brazil, Jair Bolsonaro. And right now you can write the story about Narendra Modi in India. And I, I have no doubt that all of these leaders, populists of, of the right, made almost too many mistakes to count. Uh, but I think if we tell ourselves, and a lot of people are doing this, that if Joe Biden had been president a year early, none of this would have happened and we wouldn't have had nearly 600,000 deaths from covid i think we're kidding ourselves because that's not really how how government works the president's certainly at, at the top but but in truth when something like a pandemic happens there's a there's a part of the bureaucracy whose whose job that is i mean there is a center or Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, there's a Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, and there's even an undersecretary for preparedness. And and their job is to kind of identify a public health emergency and act appropriately. And in most countries in the West, the public health bureaucracies did really badly. And that's true of countries that didn't have populist leaders, like Belgium, for example, which actually had worse excess mortality last year. Hmm. Than the US and, and the UK or, or Peru, which has actually had higher excess mortality than Brazil. So in disaster in the disaster book Doom, I try to I try to suggest that while we can place responsibility at the top, when we try to work out what's gone wrong in a disaster, it probably makes sense to look a bit further down the chain of command. And I'll give you one specific example from last year, which was the failure of CDC to get testing right. There are countries that got COVID so right that hardly anyone died. Taiwan is is probably the shining example, right next door to China, where this all began. And they very quickly made large-scale testing available, as well as getting a contact tracing app and using uh, digital means to enforce the isolation of infected or potentially infected people. We did none of that, none of that. And and at the beginning, CDC so mishandled testing, not only did they prevent other entities like laboratories and universities from creating tests, insisting that they control this, They, they then produced a test that didn't work. And that's the kind of point of failure that interests me because it's less exciting and it doesn't make for such good you know, journalism, but, but probably what's going on there is, is typical of, of the kind of failures that I'm interested in, I'll, if I can risk going on a bit long. Look at the financial crisis. Of course, uh, George W. Bush was president when it struck, but it wasn't as if Bush had personally overseen the regulation of the mortgage market or, or bank capital. And the fascinating thing, Stephen, is that on paper, bank capital was very well regulated prior to 2008. Just as on paper, and I emphasize on paper, we were were very well prepared for a pandemic in 2019. On paper, the bureaucracy had this covered. There were pages and pages of pandemic preparedness plans. It's just that as in the financial crisis, it didn't work when disaster struck. Wow.
0: And so, as you note know, in the book, uh, you know th- this is something that's gone on over and over throughout humanity and throughout the history uh, of, of of the world. Talk about the historic context for the way in which societies react to these kinds of disasters or challenges, and and how this one was different, maybe because of advantages that we that we had, but maybe also uh, because of the nature of the of the pandemic itself?
1: Well, obviously, there have been many worse pandemics than this. If one thinks of the Black Death that struck Europe in the 1340s, that was bubonic plague mostly. Somewhere around 30 or 40% of the population, higher in some places, was wiped out. The Spanish influenza uh it wasn't Spanish, but it it got that name in 1918-19, probably killed 40 times more people as a percentage of the population than COVID has so far. So this is not one of history's top pandemics. And although it's not over, it's it's not going to get close to those catastrophic events. On the other hand, we're much better equipped in terms of our scientific knowledge than, than medieval Europeans were. They had no idea what was causing uh, the bubonic plague. And in fact, it wasn't until the 20th century that we really properly understood how that how that disease was spread. So we ought to be in a much better position. Um, and in some ways, it, it's true. I mean, we, we've been able to get very quickly uh, to vaccines with very high efficacy. We understood the genetics of the virus within an astonishingly short period period of time. And yet, here we are, looking at a global death toll of 3.3 million still rising. Uh, there, There is even a claim that the death toll is already much, much higher than that, because the data understate the, the total. So, the question I, I think that's interesting is, why, if this was a sort of medium-sized disaster with at this point, 0.04% of the world's population dead, which isn't much greater than the 1957-58 so-called Asian flu. Why does it feel so disastrous? Because nobody barely remembers uh, the 1957-58 Asian flu, even though it actually killed young people a good deal more than than, than COVID has. And I, I ponder that in the book. And part of the answer is that in 1957, you did not have the option of doing a lockdown, There was no way you could say to people, you have to stay at home and work from home because you couldn't work from home in 1957. Hardly anybody could. Whereas we had the option because of the internet to say, everybody stay home. Let's lock this uh, economy down and stop. Social life. And the result is that, that we created a much bigger economic shock than previous pandemics have been associated with. Because if you look for the 1957 58 pandemic and the data and the economic data, it's not there. Whereas when you look at the economic data for last year, if all you knew were, were the economic numbers, you'd think that some absolutely catastrophic economic crisis had occurred. But I mean, it was in, in fact a public health measure that caused that huge collapse. In inactivity and enormous surge in, in unemployment last year. So I think that's that's a crucial point that we sometimes overlook that we had a we had an option that really didn't exist for past generations in 57 58 basically people knew that they couldn't do much to stop the virus spreading and so Americans and most societies just kind of soldiered on accepting excess mortality in a couple of Big waves and uh, and not really uh, expecting anything different, uh, making almost the entire public policy effort a focus on getting a vaccine. So I think that's a striking contrast. And I found in writing the book one of the most interesting. Uh, Chapters was researching the 1957-58 response, partly because it just took me back to a totally different political world. I mean, America in 1957 was not a place where vaccines were politicized, um, where public health policy was really a partisan issue. And it was also a different society in, in good ways as well as obviously in, in bad ways. But in, in one good way, it's very striking that, that American society remained cohesive uh, during that crisis, uh, whereas of course one of the striking features of, of what happened last year was this extraordinary polarization and, and partisan division on every on every issue from face masks to vaccines. Wow
0: I'm talking with Neil Ferguson. he's a renowned historian and author of 16 books including civilization: the Great Degeneration, the Ascent of Money, and his newest book, Doom: The Politics of Catastrophe just came out on May 4th. Uh, we're talking about how societies meet the challenge of disaster or catastrophe, a very relevant subject given what we've experienced in the last year all over the globe as COVID-19 has challenged every system of humanity. Everything that sustains us on this planet has been strained by the pandemic. <clears throat> if you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Let us know if you feel like you've learned Some crisis coping skills and strategies from the last year, whether it was stocking up on dry goods or learning about the power of community. As we move forward into this next chapter of the pandemic, what lessons are you learning about your own capacity to deal with a disaster and about our society's ability to do it? As always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, and put comments there, uh, and we'll try to we'll try to work you into uh, we'll try to work you into the conversation. Uh, Neil, before we get to uh, before we get to our listeners, what 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 do you think we should have learned in the last year, especially in especially in America, uh, about our preparedness about the likelihood that uh, we would repeat failure if we are indeed en- entering you know, a pandemic era where something like this is going to happen
1: more frequently. Well, I mean, one of the broad takeaways of DOOM is that you can't predict the next disaster, and it's futile to try because the way in which disasters strike is in some cases random. In other cases, it, it follows a parallel. We can't know. Uh, when the next earthquake uh, will strike the neighborhood I live in in California. We just know at some point there'll be a really big earthquake. And so I think the first lesson is it's better to be generally paranoid, generally ready for (laughs) all kinds of disastrous scenarios than very meticulously prepared for just a few scenarios. Because on paper, as I mentioned earlier, we were prepared for a pandemic. In fact, Globally, the U.S. was ranked very high for pandemic preparedness, but I think we got the wrong pandemic, and we were kind of ready for a big influenza pandemic, but we were sort of blindsided when when it was a a coronavirus, a virus that behaves in a number of ways quite differently from the influenza virus. I think there's an important lesson that we should not learn, and a lot of people, I think, wrongly learned it, and and that lesson was the Chinese know how to do these things. So uh, I think part of what happened in March, after we dithered around in January and February was that we suddenly thought, oh my Lord, we've let this thing out of control. Let's do lockdowns because that's what the Chinese did. And so we we kind of copied the Chinese playbook of a draconian restrictions on, on activity, economic and social activity. And I think we copied the wrong China because You can see in the case of Taiwan, a really smart response to the disaster. It was ramping up testing, uh, digital contact tracing and isolating the infected, which, of course, protected the vulnerable. And if we'd done all those things in January, we might be looking, as uh, the Taiwanese are looking at, very, very low casualty figures. About 12 or maybe 13 people have died. From COVID in Taiwan to date, not not twelve thousand, but just twelve, and that's because they 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 did what the great epidemiologist Larry Brilliant recommended back in two thousand and five: early detection, early action, and we failed to do that. Now, the question I kept asking myself. Was why Taiwan? Why and also why South Korea? And why did Israel do quite well despite a big outbreak in the middle of last year? And I think the answer is that they have good reasons to be generally paranoid Mm. because their neighbors are out to get them in various ways. And so I think that if you Take, take one big lesson away from all of this. It is that we need to get our government, because this is not just about public health. It's about a whole range of different disasters that can, can strike. We need to get government to be less bureaucratic and nimbler, quicker in its response, the bureaucratic approach, which I think we find in different domains, not just in public health and financial regulation, and I'm sure it's also true of earthquake preparedness in California, I'm sure there are just pages and pages of terrific uh, uh, PowerPoint decks and, and reports of, of preparedness plans. I just have this suspicion that these meticulous plans don't work when, when the rubber hits the road. So we need to learn, I think, from Taiwan. I'm, I'm really impressed by how the Taiwanese government has leveraged technology technology. Mm. Uh, in ways that um, empower citizens, one of the heroes of my book is a transgender minister, Audrey Tang, in Taiwan, who's pioneered using technology to empower Taiwanese citizens. We could have done that, but we didn't do it. I mean, we—it's not like the big tech companies don't have all the data they need to graph our networks. Right. We could have had contact tracing, but they chose not to. And I think the fact that that didn't happen is one of the most interesting things about 2020. We really failed to take advantage of technology, and we know it could be done because they they did it so successfully in Taiwan as well as in South Korea. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Uh, I want to get a call in here before we have to uh, end the show. Steve in Huntington Woods, welcome to the program.
2: Uh, Thank you. Uh, Yes, I am a retired public health director and I must take issue with Dr. Ferguson's comments on the CDC and on bureaucracies in general. Um, You have a, a somewhat Um, uh, denigrating comment and and perspective on the planning of CDC. In fact, CDC's plans would have been implemented if it hadn't been uh, for interference from the executive branch for executive policy that said that there would be no centralized approach to uh, either testing, helping the states test, uh, or many other aspects of pandemic uh, preparedness, which were present in the plans in which the CDC would have been fully able to implement if it had not been for, implement for uh, interference from uh, the president uh, who did not allow any governmental, um, any governmental action that was contrary to his own perspective. Uh, public health works very, very well when there isn't interference from political uh, powers. And as far as contact tracing and technology go, uh, there was nothing stopping individual states from implementing those systems. And in fact, Michigan did, and it was very successful. So those are my comments.
0: Yeah, uh, I appreciate that, Steve. Uh, We've only got about 30 seconds left, Neil, but uh, respond to what he's saying.
1: Let me quote a former F official uh, it, th- this is from the book here's an agency that's been waiting its entire existence for this moment and then they flub it it's very sad that is what they were set up to do it can't really be attributed to Trump that the testing was botched the way it was botched and 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 former CD officials CDC officials acknowledge that it's not our culture to intervene one of them said in an interview that I quoted in the book so with all due respect I think that's not quite right
0: mm. okay Neil Ferguson, really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for
1: joining us. Thanks, Stephen.
0: That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow for a conversation with renowned linguist John McWhorter about his new book titled Nine Nasty Words, which explores our penchant for profanity and examines the realms of language that are considered shocking and taboo. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.